God, thank you so much that we can get together and study your word and learn about you um, and that we can tackle the hard things in scripture. I pray that as we do this, this wouldn't just be human minds trying to make sense of it, but that it would be your spirit illuminating things to us and um, helping us to understand your truths, Lord. So God, I pray for your presence tonight. I pray for clarity as we study the scriptures, and I pray that you would be revealing things to us that you want us to learn, each of us in our individual walks, um, where we're at. I pray that you would meet us each there and reveal things about your character to us, Lord. Thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I want us to start um, by kind of picturing a scenario here. How many of y'all have ever seen a movie or seen a TV show where somebody's spouse cheated on them? Like, probably all of us, right? And so think about these movies and these TV shows. Like, let's say that it's a scenario where a wife finds out that her husband's been cheating on her and has no intention of stopping, okay? So usually in these movies, there's some scene where basically her rage just gets unleashed, right? Maybe she's, like, bashing his car with, like, a baseball bat or she storms in on, like, a date with him and another woman, like, just gives him to him, like, like punches him in the face or something. There's, like, this outburst, this rage that kind of pours out, Okay. So think about when you're watching these movies, like how do you typically feel during that scene? If you're like me, it's kind of satisfying, right? It's kind of like, yeah, like he deserves so much more. What a jerk. You know, like we kind of want him to get what's coming for him, right? We kind of have this feeling of like he has done something wrong and justice needs to happen, okay? And I think a lot of times that's because this idea of like marriage and faithfulness, it kind of it hits us close to home. Because we all can imagine what it would feel like for our husband or our hypothetical husband, if we're not married yet, to cheat on us. And it really hits something deep inside of us. It kind of triggers us in a pretty deep way, right? So there's this feeling inside of us that justice needs to happen. So those moments in these movies are kind of satisfying. Now, I want you to think about the fact that the picture that we're given with Hosea's life is that of marriage, okay? Because marriage is the covenant that two people on earth can enter into, and it's supposed to reflect something bigger, okay? So when we have this picture of marriage today in the church, it's a picture of Christ in the church. For Hosea, it was a picture of God and Israel, okay? Now, when you have something that is just a picture, that means that it's a small reflection of what it images, okay? So it's something that is representing something much, much larger. So if we see marital unfaithfulness as something that's worthy of punishment or that justice should be served for, why do we feel so uncomfortable with the idea of God judging the Israelites for their unfaithfulness? Now, obviously, in my example of the wife getting cheated on, her anger is kind of riddled with her own personal sin, right? Like, I mean, she's kind of, um, she doesn't have this pure righteous anger. She has kind of a selfish anger, an anger that maybe, like, really kind of wants to see her husband suffer, you know? Um, so the point of this analogy is not to compare God to the wife and the way that this rage looks and the way that it comes out. That's not the point of the illustration. But the idea is just that we want to look at our own um, attitude towards justice and why it's different in one scenario and not the other. Um, if Let's see what happens in these scenarios if we remove the justice, if we remove all of the anger and the hurt and the rage, okay? Let's say we see the same scene in a movie and a wife finds out that her husband's been cheating on her and has no intention to stop. How would we feel if she basically was like, okay, and like didn't care? It didn't make her mad. It didn't hit anything. It didn't strike a chord. We would be like, oh, man, like she must not really love her husband that much if that didn't hurt her in some way, if that didn't make her angry, right? It would be the response of somebody who probably felt pretty apathetic towards their relationship. I've kind of heard it said before that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's apathy. And so when we look at this scenario, the reason that it triggers so much big emotion is because there was so much big love to start with, right? Um, 
Now, what about this situation with God? See how we kind of flip it around and we say, well, in the situation with God in Israel, love should cause him to just forgive the sin and to not have any judgment, right? But do you see how that's inconsistent? We're kind of having some inconsistencies in what we think should happen in this situation over here between two people versus what we think should happen in this situation with God and his people. We feel like that God's love should lead him to withhold judgment. But in marriage, we would kind of see that as apathy and like there's not really much love there to begin with. And I think that the reason that we have this double standard is because in the marriage analogy, we imagine ourselves as maybe the one who has been wronged in the situation. When we see these movies, we think, what would that feel like for that wife? What would it feel like to have somebody do that to you? But in the Israel analogy, we imagine ourselves as the ones who are unfaithful. And guys, we're incredibly self-serving in nature. So naturally, if we feel like we're on one side of the equation, we feel like we deserve justice. But if we're on the other side of the equation, we felt like we should be dealt mercy. So do you see how our self-serving nature, it kind of affects the way that we see what's happening between God and Israel, okay? So as we take a look at some of these hard judgments that God's going to lay on Israel, I want you to try to keep in mind that God would not have been grieved and angered by Israel's unfaithfulness if he didn't love them immensely, okay? The same way that when a wife loves her husband, it's going to trigger this grief and anger within her, okay? He's not going to punish Israel if his relationship with Israel didn't matter. So right off the bat, the fact that these judgments even occur at all teaches something about God's character, right? They show us that he loves Israel and he cares about their relationship with him immensely, okay? So we need to go into this with that mindset of understanding that about God's character and his nature, okay? So on that note, let's dive into the text. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. So we've mentioned before that Hosea isn't really a book that was just written from start to finish. Hosea didn't just sit down and write it. It's kind of a compilation. It's like there's parts that he wrote, and then there's parts that were recorded by his disciples of different times that he prophesied. And all of these are kind of compiled together. So because of that, we get a lot of repetition. We have a lot of the same judgments and the same types of judgments repeated throughout the book. And the same kind of um, evidence of their sins repeated throughout the book. So we've kind of had a lot of chapters to kind of get a baseline understanding of what Israel had been doing. Today we're going to start to be introduced to a lot more of the judgments that God's going to lay down. And that's the hard stuff of the book. But throughout these judgments, we're still getting the evidence in our, like, sprinkled in throughout to remind us that these judgments are for good reason. Okay? So... In in an effort to not make this feel like we're repeating the things we've already taken, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to instead start categorizing the things that we've learned, okay? We've been talking about the ways that they've sinned, and we're going to talk about the judgments, and I think it's going to help the judgments make sense to us more if we can start putting some categories to the sin and then see how the judgments maybe kind of match these categories, okay? So we're going to start by categorizing the sin, the the evidence, the ways that they've sinned against God. Um, We've seen them listed through the past couple weeks. We've been kind of talking about these. Um, So let's kind of start to organize them in our minds. So there's three main categories of how Israel broke the covenant. I think we mentioned this maybe in week one. The first is that they sinned spiritually, okay? They sinned spiritually. The second is that they sinned politically. And the third is that they sinned personally, okay? I'm going to say that again in case you're writing it down. They sinned spiritually, politically, and personally. So we're going to examine each of those one at a time, okay? So we're going to start with how they sinned spiritually, because that's kind of what was most prevalent. It's kind of what fed into the other two categories. Now, when we say that they sinned spiritually, the category of the spiritual sin 
That's basically anything that involved their worshiping of false gods, the worshiping the Baals, creating the golden calf, the fact that they were taking like the, the way that they were supposed to worship Yahweh and they were kind of combining it with pagan worship and they were just basically distorting it completely. Um, all of that just kind of describes their spiritual sin. So we've gone into detail about that the last few weeks. So I'm not going to read all of the verses. Today we're in 8 through 10. I'm sure that you guys knew that. I'm not going to do all of the verses in 8 through 10 that describe that, but I'm just going to pick out a couple um, just to kind of illustrate. So some of the verses that talk about their spiritual sin in today's passage is we see things like, with their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. So self-explanatory. They physically made idols. We see, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. So kind of describing that, even though they're still kind of doing the motions of these sacrifices that they were supposed to do, they had distorted it. It was no longer acceptable. We still see verses that say things like, they have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. So again, they're whoring after other gods. All of these verses, they kind of keep on, as we go through the text, they're reminding Israel of the spiritual adultery that they're facing judgment for. Now, there's a couple more passages that I'm going to kind of explain in a little bit more detail that talk about their spiritual adultery because it helps us to have context with some of these things. So go ahead and look at chapter 9, verse 10. Here it says, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. So this passage here, when it talks about Baal Peor, this is referring to something that happened in Numbers chapter 25. And this is right as Israel was about to enter Canaan. They were like in the process of entering the promised land, okay? Now, upon entering the promised land, they wanted to ensure agricultural fertility. So what they did is they get to this place called Baal Peor. I'm probably saying that wrong, too. And when they're there, large numbers of Israelite men started to engage in sexual rites with Moabite and Midianite women, okay? Now, they did this because they were already looking to these pagan gods to ensure this agricultural fertility. Guys, this was right as they were entering the promised land, right after God had done so much to rescue them from Egypt, had led them through the wilderness. They're entering the promised land. It had not been that long. They should have been remembering God's promises and everything he said they would do. And immediately, they start engaging in sexual rights to these foreign gods to ensure agricultural fertility. So verse 10 is kind of pointing this out as a turning point. This is a, a turning point in God's relationship with Israel. Already when they're entering the promised land, they become detestable. They're starting to become detestable to God because they've already broken the covenant already at the beginning of their entering into Canaan. Does that make sense? So then, obviously, 500 or so year, years go by, like we've talked about. And then now we see, again, in Hosea, in chapter 9, verse 15, it's going to reference another city. So in 9.15, it says that every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. While Bear, so basically, now we're hearing about Gilgal. So we talked about how Baal Peor, that referred to where their religious prostitution started. That was where it all began, where they first kind of started breaking the covenant. Well, Gilgal, in this current situation with Hosea, that was a place that that religious prostitution was still occurring. It was kind of an ancient cult center where from the beginning of the promised land all the way until now, this same practice was happening, and it was very prevalent there. It was actually right across the river from Baal Peor. So we're kind of seeing that what started in this one place has continued on and grown, and for that we're told here in verse 15 that God began to hate them. Now, it might seem shocking to hear that word, hate, describing how God feels for his people. 
because we kind of think of hate as an emotion, that it's a bad emotion, you know? Um, but here, though, the word hate is actually more of a covenant term. It's kind of one that really means that God rejected them. So it's not hate in the same sense that we experience hate or that we think of hate. Um, the covenant with Israel kind of started with God promising his protecting love over Israel. And then now the breaking of that covenant by Israel kind of initiated the beginning of his rejection. So that's kind of what the word hate here is pointing to. So not so much what we feel like hate means. It was like a covenant term symbolizing that that covenant is kind of breaking at this point. So we've kind of seen a lot of verses, even still this late in Hosea, that are still talking about the spiritual sin, okay? Um, all of this evidence is piling up that Israel had sinned spiritually. Now, when we think about their sin, it's helpful to kind of break it down and think that we've got the external sin. That's the actual actions that they were doing. Then we have the heart motive behind their sin. That's kind of like what they were trying to achieve by sinning. And then we have how God was supposed to be the one to satisfy that heart motive. So in the case of the spiritual sin, the external sin is the actual going and worshiping these idols. It's engaging in religious prostitution, like the temple prostitution. It's the blending and warping of the way that they did their, you know, sacrificial system and everything and blending it with pagan rituals. That's the external sin. Now, the heart motivation behind it is they wanted agricultural fertility. They wanted personal, like, fertility. They wanted to increase in number. They wanted just basically um, the land to be really, like, um, prosperous, okay? So that was the heart motive behind the sin. Now, that heart motive is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to want those things. That's not sinful. What makes it sinful for them is that those were things that they were supposed to look for within the covenant. Those were things that God promised, and yet they were looking outside the covenant for them, okay? So we kind of see that there's, a, there's kind of a progression here. There's what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how they're not trusting God for that. So keep that in mind. Sorry. Keep that in mind because it's going to help us when we talk about the judgments. All right. So that's kind of a good review of how they'd been sinning spiritually. The second way that they were sinning was politically. Now, that's kind of how we've talked about how they were, you know, basically selecting their kings without having any, you know, any um, care for what God thought. And they were going to these other nations to, you know, form alliances for their protection. And so we kind of see more of these verses throughout these chapters as well. We see things that it says things like, they made kings, but not through me. Though they hire allies among the nations, Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. So we keep seeing reference to their political sin. So politically, their external sin was that they were selecting kings and making alliances. Their motive behind the sin is that they wanted to feel safe and secure, and they wanted to be led by somebody who was going to ensure their prosperity. Again, those motivations are not bad. Those are good motivations, okay? Where they went wrong was those were motivations, those were desires that God was supposed to fulfill, and they looked away from God and towards these other things to have them fulfilled. So they looked outside the covenant for what was supposed to happen inside the covenant. Okay, so that's kind of their um, political sin, the different layers of it. And then finally, they had become immoral and full of personal sin. Now, we don't get a lot of detail. We haven't had quite as many verses that really spell out their immorality and the things that they were doing. Like, I think last week, Madison had some verses that kind of showed how they had been stealing and murdering and breaking a lot of the commandments. But we haven't gone into very much detail. But there is actually a pretty good indicator um, in this section here that shows just how bad it was. So in chapter 9, verse 9, it says, They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gebeah. Then again in chapter 10, verse 9, it says, From the days of Gebeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. 
shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gebeah. So we have these two references to Gebeah, and basically the verses are saying, you're sinning the way that the sin was in Gebeah. So we need to ask ourselves, well, what happened in Gebeah? What happened there? Because that's going to help us to see what's happening here. So if you did the Judges study, you might remember that there was a story at the very end of the book of Judges. And this story is meant to illustrate basically like the extent of the depravity of Israel, how bad it had gotten. Like the whole book of Judges kind of has a downward spiral where it starts with Israel has high hopes. You know, things are looking good. They've got a good judge. And then Israel and the judges go downhill and get worse and worse and worse. And it kind of reaches this pinnacle with this story of something really atrocious and awful that happens. And it's for the purpose of showing how bad Israel was and how far they had strayed from God. So I'm going to read this story for you, and that's going to help give us a picture of kind of what the nature of Israel was like. So this is going to be found in Judges chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 15 through 30, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. It says, And they turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gebeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gebeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. For I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but I am now going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant and the young man who is with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace to you, only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into his house and gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were making merry, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded their house pounding the door and they spoke to the owner of the house the old man saying bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him then the man the owner of the house went out to them and said to them no my fellows please do not do this please do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house do not commit this act of folly here is my virgin daughter and his concubine please let me bring them out to you that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish but do not commit such an act of folly against this man But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning. Then let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, then behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up and let us go. But there was no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey, and the man arose and went into his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her in twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And it came about that all who saw it said, Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. So in this story, what had happened leading up to this was there was a man with his concubine traveling. And there were some cities that they could have stayed in. And they said, no, these, are, these cities, we're not going to stay in these cities because these aren't Israelite cities. These are cities for, of Canaan. These are cities of people that are not our people. We'll be safer if we stay in an Israelite city. Let's go a little further and stay in Gebeah. So they specifically passed over other cities so they could stay where they felt they would be safe with their own people, with Israelites in Gebeah. And the first thing that happens is they get there, 
and nobody offers to shelter them for the night, which goes very strongly against the hospitality customs of that time. That already is indicating that this was not a welcoming place. This was people who were not um, hospitable. They were not, it was very, very shocking for people to not offer him a place to stay at this time. Um, and then finally, somebody does offer to shelter them. It's not even somebody who lives there. This is kind of a city full of Benjamites. It's one of the tribes. Um, this is an outsider who offers to lodge this man and his concubine. And so then, af- after they get into this man's house, they're surrounded by Israelite men who say, let your visitor out so that we can basically abuse and rape him. And they say, no, take my virgin daughter and his concubine instead. And so I guess there's some arguing. The man eventually kind of just throws out his concubine. They rape her all night long. They abuse her all night long. And then it says that when he wakes up, because apparently he still got a good night's sleep, and then he opens the door and she's laying there, and he tells her, get up. Not, are you okay? Not, does not try to help her. We hear just this cold, get up. I mean, do you see how there's, n- there's no good character in this story? So then she eventually dies because of her injuries. And so what does he do? He cuts her into pieces and he nails her to every tribe in Israel because he wants revenge on these people who damaged not really the woman he loves, clearly. We can see that by the way he treated her. It's more of like they damaged his property. And so what does all of Israel do? We didn't get to that in the story, but then Israel rallies together. They come and they basically murder almost every single person in the tribe of Benjamin and completely wipe out all but a tiny remnant of the tribe of Benjamin. Guys, this story is awful. Like I get goosebumps just telling it because it just it is just this picture of this darkness and depravity and sin and just not at all what the people of God should look like, right? And this is the reference that we have to describe the people during Hosea's time. Do you see that even though we don't have these details of their sin, just saying that it it is the same, it has continued as it was in Gebeah, that is a strong sentence. And that shows us that it was pretty, pretty, pretty bad, okay? All right. So we've kind of reviewed the ways that Israel had been sinning. And we've placed that sin into three categories, okay? We've kind of reviewed that they had spiritual sin. We've reviewed that that was because they were worshiping other gods and they had these motives of wanting prosperity and fertility of their land and body. We reviewed that they were sinning politically. They were looking to outside nations and their own kings for protection and just to, you know, be able to prosper politically. And then they had this dark personal sin as just they were just completely immoral okay so now what we're going to do is we're going to start to look at the judgments and categorize the judgments and kind of see how they kind of match up with what they were doing before we dive into the judgments though i want to think back to the example that we said at the beginning of this woman who finds out that her husband cheats on her and she kind of flies into a rage it can be easy to just see these judgments listed out like i had you list them in the homework which is pretty gut-wrenching to have to look at one after another right So sometimes what we end up doing is we wrongly picture God the way we picture that woman, just flying in a rage, just wanting to hurt somebody, okay, Um, kind of losing control, lashing out, um, wanting to hurt his people. Because, like, the woman we pictured er earlier probably had some sort of pleasure or satisfaction in causing pain for her husband, you know. But, guys, that is not God's character. That is like a sinful person carrying out her anger, Now, we have to remember that God is not sinful. Like, his anger is just and righteous and perfect. And so we know enough about the character of God to know that it's not going to be the same. It's not going to have that desire to hurt. Guys, if God found pleasure in hurting Israel, he wouldn't have waited 500 years to do it. 
he wouldn't have given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn it around and to stop pursuing these other gods, right? So he obviously just his love made this judgment. He put it off for so long because he wanted to give them every opportunity. So we know that it's different, and we can't see it through the same lenses, okay? Sometimes we look at these judgments, and we kind of feel like God's just, like, reaching down and giving them, like, a giant spanking or whatever, and, like, he's just wanting to hurt them in every way possible. Um, But when we look closer, I think we're going to see that's really not what's happening here. Um, There's really more purpose behind what's happening. Now, in parenting, there's a concept called logical consequences. It's kind of this idea that, like, when your kid does something wrong, the consequences should probably kind of make some sort of sense. So, for example, like, if I was on a play date with another kid, um, one of Jax's friends, and Jax just kept on hitting them and pinching them and hurting them. So, like, I could say, Jax, if you hit him one more time, no more TV for a week, and you don't get any more, you know, treats, and basically take a bunch of stuff away. Now, he might stop doing it, but he hasn't really learned anything other than, uh uh-oh, if I break the rules, bad things are going to happen to me, right? But a logical consequence would be something like, okay, Jax, now my job is to keep you and your friends safe, and right now, if you continue to hurt your friend, we're going to have to go home. I can't let you keep hurting him. We can try again another day. Now, there's a consequence that he doesn't get to keep playing with his friends, but it makes sense because he understands, okay, if I'm going to hurt somebody, then I can't be around them. That makes sense. It's a logical consequence, okay? So I think that when we look at the consequences and the judgments that God lays down, I think that they're not just arbitrary punishments. God's just not trying to inflict pain on his people because he's mad at them, but these punishments actually are logical and make sense, and they teach us something about the character of God. They're going to bring a lot of clarity, okay? These judgments are not going to bring confusion. They're going to bring clarity because in removing all these false idols and worship, God brings clarity about where true power is found. In removing the blessings that they were looking to, to these false idols for, God brings clarity about who the source of the blessings actually is and who's actually worthy of worship, okay? He's going to bring clarity to the covenant and the truth of the covenant terms. They were existing in complete confusion. They were believing all these things that just weren't true. They were believing that these idols could do things that they couldn't do. They were believing that these nations could protect them in ways that God couldn't. They were living in confusion, so God strips it all away and brings clarity, okay? So let's look at some of these curses and kind of see what exactly God is doing here. So we're going to start with one category of curses. I'm going to read a bunch of these curses, and then we're going to talk about the category of them, okay? So in chapter 8, verse 3, one of the curses says, the enemy shall pursue him, kind of talking about Israel's enemies are now going to be pursuing Israel and trying to conquer them. 8.14, so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. 9.3 says, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So basically showing that they are going to lose their nationhood They are going to be returning to Egypt where they were once held in captive. It's like a representation of being held in captive by another um, nation, okay? And then Assyria is basically the nation that's going to overthrow them. Um, 917 says, they shall be wanderers among the nations, like they will no longer have their own land anymore. 1014 says, all your fortresses will be destroyed. These strong, mighty fortresses that you've been looking to for protection, they're going to be destroyed. 1015, at dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off pretty much how the chapter ends, our section ends, okay? So there's more along these lines, um, but I just want to point out that there's a large group of curses that center around this idea of being pursued by enemies, their total destruction, their loss of nationhood, 
the return to being ruled by other nations, like the return to Egypt is like this example of being ruled by another nation. So do you see how all of these curses, they directly relate to the political sins of Israel, okay? Now remember how we pointed out earlier that Israel had these external sins and then the internal motivations. So basically, a lot of these curses are aimed towards destroying the external sin here, okay? Like, you're going to trust in these strong fortresses and tearing the fortresses down. You're going to trust in your king to lead you. Your king is going to be utterly cut off, okay? So some of these curses point to destroying the outer sin. A lot of these other voices are going to point to basically destroying what they were hoping to get, like the internal motivations, okay? Like, they were wanting protection. They were wanting power. And so the rest of these verses basically say, you were looking for protection from something other than God. Well, guess what? The protection's gone because you've rejected God. You're looking to something who can't actually protect you. So these curses, they basically, God is dealing with the outer sin and the inner motivation, the sin behind the sin. We've talked about that kind of in other studies too. Like he's dealing with all of it. It's a very holistic dealing with of sin, okay? Um, let's look at some other curses, another category. That was kind of like how the political curses kind of match their political sin. Let's look at kind of the spiritual. Verse 8, 6 says, The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. So that's obviously the calf that they created, the golden calf to worship. It's going to be broken to pieces. 8, 7 says, The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flour. So basically your land is not going to be producing abundant food for you anymore. 9.4, they shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. So basically, they, these sacrifices that they've been doing, but doing in an, un, un good, like an unclean way or a, um, just not the right way, they are not pleasing to God anymore. 9.11, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. 9.12, even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. 9.16, Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. Whew. That's a lot, guys. That's a lot to process, right? Now, we started out on a list with some kind of easier ones to connect. Like, it's kind of obvious that if they're going to make an idol, a golden calf, that's got to go, right? That's going to be destroyed, okay? Um, that, that calf was like one of the obvious representations of the outer spiritual sin, and it was going to be destroyed. Then we have the grain not yielding flour. And so that's kind of the representation of their inward motivation because they wanted abundant land. They were going to these idols because they wanted abundant land and fertility of the land. So God is saying even the things that you wanted internally, that's going to be taken away as well. The fertility of the land that you were looking for is going to be removed as well. Um, so again, he's addressing the outer and the inner sin like we mentioned before. And then we have all these curses about infertility and miscarriage and the death of their children. And guys, for me, these were some of the most difficult ones to swallow because it's, you look at these and you're like, what? Like, that's not the God I know. The God I know isn't going to be killing babies, like, isn't going to be like, you know, killing people's babies. That doesn't make any sense with what we know about the character of God. Um, I think that, like, we need to remember that the primary idol that Israel had been worshiping was a fertility God, okay? Not just fertility of the land, but fertility of their bodies. They wanted to increase in number, okay? And how can God address the sin of looking at a false fertility idol without having punishments that deal with their fertility, okay? If he's going to have a holistic, like, punishment, a holistic approach to addressing their sin, he has to approach all of it. And they were looking to a fertility God who's going to have to address their idol of wanting to increase in number, okay? 
One thing that we haven't addressed so far is one of the ways that they worshiped Baal, okay? We talked about the temple prostitution. That's obviously bad. That was a big part of Baal worship. Another really atrocious way that Baal worship happened involved child sacrifice, okay? This is something that we get um, glimpses of throughout the Old Testament that happened, but also just outside of the Bible, it's well documented that there was an element of child sacrifice when you're worshiping Baal, okay? Um, chapter 9 verse 16 says even though they give birth i will put their beloved children to death okay so i don't think it's a coincidence that their punishment when they're going to be involved in a cult ritual of child sacrifice their punishment is going to be involving the death of their children because again he's having to address the entirety of their sin and he can't overlook some of it because it's hard for us to stomach okay so now when it says here that they i will put their beloved children to death that word beloved children is kind of more accurately translated the coveted of their womb. And I think when we say it that way, the coveted of their womb, when we hear that word coveted, it kind of starts to help us get more of the sense of the feeling that they were coveting this so much. They were coveting, you know, multiplication and having children to the extent they wanted it so bad that they couldn't trust God with it. But they, they turned to a basically a wooden, you know, idol and voluntarily killed their children. For this cult, okay, which makes no sense. It's completely illogical, but that's what they were doing, okay? Um, so basically, like, as gut-wrenching as it is, like, God was putting to death the very thing that Israel coveted so much that it caused them to turn to this idol and do this atrocious thing. Does that make sense? All right, so as gut-wrenching as it is, he was stripping away that which was causing them to sin. And that brings us to the last category, which this one we don't have as much on but that last category of their personal sin, we hear a lot of just verses that talk about things like he will remember their iniquity and he's going to punish their sins. And so I think that basically it kind of matches up with that category of the personal sin. They've disregarded the Ten Commandments. They're living for their own self-interest. They are completely disregarding the interests of others and basically sinning against one another. There's stealing, there's rape, there's murder, there's child sacrifice, there's bad things going on. And God is saying that he is going to remember that and he's going to punish their sins. Okay, so we've got all these curses, these three categories. It's basically what we're seeing when we kind of put it all together to see the big picture of these three different categories together. We're basically seeing what happens when God removes his presence and protection and provision and guidance. Okay, We ask every week, what do we see and what do we learn about God in the text? And I think that when we look at these curses, we're learning a lot about God. And I think one of those things is that when he removes himself from a covenant relationship with Israel, we learn a lot from his absence because his absence is what is associated with these curses, which means that his presence is the opposite of these curses, okay? We see that God is good because the absence of relationship with God is so, so bad. Guys, these curses are what happens when God exits the relationship. They're not to be associated with life in the presence of God. They're to be associated with life apart from God, okay? It's kind of like if I had an umbrella and it's raining outside and I don't want to get wet, so I'm holding this umbrella and I'm just like, ugh, this umbrella is too heavy and it's not even, my feet are still getting wet anyway. It's not really working that good. I'm going to put it down and stand under this tiny branch, you know? And then I start getting wet. Well, like, when I put down the umbrella and I start getting wet, it's because I've removed the umbrella. It's the absence of the umbrella that's causing me to get wet. So we learn that the presence of the um, the presence of the umbrella keeps us dry when we contrast it with what happens in its absence. 
So in the same way, we learn about a lot about God's character when we see what happens when he is now absent from the covenant, okay? We learn that he is good because his absence is so beyond bad. We have just seen a, be, a bleak picture of what his absence of relationship with us looks like, right? We learn that he is the source of life because his rejection brings nothing but death, right? We learn that he is caring because we see what he has been protecting them from all of these years, okay? So his care and concern for them caused him to wait 500 years to even do any of this in the first place. We're going to look at one more tough judgment to see that God's not just simply hurting the Israelites because he wants them to pay the price for what they've done, okay? Look with me at chapter 10, verse 14. This verse says, Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses, fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arabel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Okay, guys, when I first read through the text the first time, and I wasn't really, like, placing things in context and everything, I was like, what? Like, dashing mothers and children on rocks? Like, this is awful. Um, but I want us to understand that this is not saying that God wants to dash mothers and children on rocks. That's not what it's saying. Basically, in the surrounding areas outside of Israel, like a, a practice of ancient warfare was basically ripping open the bellies of pregnant women and dashing children on rocks. That was what these other nations did. That was what war warfare, warfare looked like. It was exactly the kind of practice that God was promising to protect his people from, okay? Now, they rejected his protection, so now God is saying, I'm going to be delivering you over to what you have chosen instead because he is removing his protection at like they chose, okay? One commentator, she kind of described this really well. She said, when God gives the people over to their own way and their fate is left to the forces of secular history— they then become subject to all the cruelties and destructiveness of sinful human beings. Israel has chosen its own way and will reap the consequences. So yes, there are some verses in here that basically are showing us that God is delivering these judgments to his people. But there's also a lot of verses that just kind of show that he's also just delivering them over to the world that they have chosen. And this is what they have chosen. They have chosen a harsh, cruel world that is not going to protect them instead of trusting in God's protection, okay? So when we look at all of this combined and all this together, we look at the outer sins they were doing. We look at what their heart motives were underneath those sins. We look at the fact that they didn't want to look to God to meet those heart desires. And then we see what the consequences were. It kind of looks like we're seeing this picture of that they said, no, God, like we don't trust you to protect our nation. We want whatever these kings and these other you know, nations can do for us instead. And so God holds off and holds off and holds off because he knows it's not what's best for them. And then finally it gets to the point where he says, Okay, and he gave them what they asked for. Basically, they said, no, God, we don't want you to bless us with abundance and fertility. We want whatever these wooden things can offer us instead. And God holds off and holds off and holds off because he knows it's not, that's not what's good for them. And then he eventually says, okay, here you go. I'm going to show you exactly what these wooden idols can offer you, which is basically nothing. So he removes himself, which is essentially what they asked for. And now we are seeing the results of that, okay? Do you see how that's a little bit different than God just being this in this angry rage and just wanting to hurt his people? It's a little bit different than that, okay? Now, you might even still be thinking, yeah, you know, I get it. Okay, the, fun the punishment fit the crimes, and, like, you know, he's dealing with their outer inner sin. I kind of get all that, but he'd really have to be so harsh. 
Like, couldn't he have just made them suffer just a little bit, like just enough to like kind of prove a point and then, you know, and then show his mercy again? This just seems so extreme. But I think that the reason we feel that way is that we have too little of a view of eternity. We have too big of a view of what life here on earth is and too little of a view of eternity either apart from God or in God's presence, okay? We can forget what it looks like to live a life, what life apart from God really means because in the world that we live in, um, it's temporary, okay? And we, there's a lot of people who live very happy and moral and good lives who have no interest in knowing God. So it's easy for us to look at that and think, well, life apart from God doesn't seem so bad, right? I know plenty of people who are good people that I am so glad that I know, and they don't love God. They're just living for themselves, but they are kind, and they are moral, and they're successful, and they're living full lives, you know? And so we see this temporary illusion of the world and think, life apart from God, is it really that bad? We have a gift in this picture here because God is removing the illusion of the world and showing us in detail a very, very graphic picture of what eternity apart from God is, okay? It is not having the desires of our heart met. It is death. It is the absence of the desires of our hearts. It's everything, like the opposite of what we are so much striving for, okay? So I think that, like, when we see it that way, and we realize just the enormity of eternity compared to this short time on earth, God is giving us clarity in this picture that his presence relationally in our lives, that equals life. And his absence relationally to us means death because we don't often really realize that in this kind of world that we live in today. So what do we take away from all of this, all this judgment, all the things we've talked about? Um, Again, we always want to talk about what do we learn about God's character? I think that we see a lot of things about the character of God through his judgments. And I've only just scratched the surface. I'm hoping in our discussion that we can start identifying a lot more. But I think some of the main ones that I want us to walk away here remembering are that today we've seen that God show us, God's judgments show us that he loves his people and he is grieved by their sin, okay? Like he wouldn't be so grieved if he didn't care. So his judgments show us the depth of how much he loves and cares for his people because it would not grieve him otherwise. We also saw that he is good because his absence is so bad. We saw that relationship with him equals life because absence of relationship with him is nothing but death, okay? And we saw that he is powerful and he is worthy of our complete worship Because as much as the world tries to convince us otherwise, no other thing or person can give to us the things that God promises, okay? Only God can give us the actual and true desires of our hearts. Everything else is a temporary illusion, and his judgments here strip away that illusion and show us that he is the only one who can truly meet the desires of our hearts. Let's pray. God, thank you for difficult texts. Thank you for challenging us and pushing us to truly dig in and to see your character and to not try to press our own opinion of what we think you should be like on you, but to actually ask the question, what does this text tell us about who you are? I pray that we would see richness in this text, that we would see the depth that comes in looking at the hard things, and that we wouldn't settle for a shallow understanding of who you are and your character, but that we would that we would go deeper and that we would just really um, 
just be um, affected and influenced by what we have learned tonight. I pray again just for your spirit to be making this make sense to us and help us to come to terms and to grips with the hard things that we encounter in Scripture, Lord. Pray for an accurate understanding of you and who you are and of this text. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so go ahead and head.